in 20 years' time, there won't be insurance companies and insure tech companies. They'll just be tech-enabled insurance companies, or you won't exist. So you've got to go after it. Good morning, good evening, Matthew Grant here, and with a spring in my step after a week off, the sun is shining, and another great interview for you today. Now, combining great technology with fresh sources of data to offer new insurance solutions was one of the original reasons driving the interest in InsurTech. For this episode, I'm bringing you four of the best examples of technology-enabled MGAs in the UK today. They're all offering solutions for different marketplaces, but there are a lot of consistent themes coming through of what it takes to be successful. Graham Elliott is CEO and co-founder of Reserve, offering insurance to high net worth individuals. Alistair Spear-Cole is president of Complex, which offers high-end analytics, including cyber risk. Elizabeth Jenkins is chief commercial officer of Nimbler and talks about how they are helping small businesses with invoice insurance. And finally, Jonathan Spry is CEO and co-founder of Envelop, offering cyber reinsurance. This episode draws on a lively discussions we had at the KBW Insurance Financials InsureTech event recently hosted by William Hawkins. More on that shortly. Now, whether you have a deep career in insurance or know nothing about it at all, you are bound to find something of value in here. As usual, if we get too technical, I jump in and try to explain what is going on. Now, if you're not familiar with what an MGA is, that's a managing general agency, think of it as a cross between an insurer and a broker. An MGA has the authority to underwrite but uses another insurer or reinsurer's capital. If you want to know more about MGAs, you'll find a link to an article I wrote in the episode notes. Finally, one common theme of each of our guests is that they left careers with large established companies to join or start organizations, all of which were formed in the last five years or so. So let's find out why. And first up is Graham Elliott of Azure. Graham, let's kick off with you first of all. So you're writing high net worth business with Azure. You're also building out your technology for yourself, but actually for other organizations as well. I think what our Californian colleagues would call eating your own dog food. What was it for you that you decided that it was time to, to go out there and, and build an MGA? And if you want to add a few words about what you're doing at Azure and there as well, that would be great. I um, first ran an MGA in 2012 for Arca Harrison. Never really come across them before. Absolutely loved the vehicle, loved its flexibility and loved the fact that it was capital light. And it reminded me in a way of, of hedge funds and its, and its flexible approach to things. But in an industry that was all about data or should be all about data, I was genuinely shocked by the technology. Um, the MGA I was running, we were on a legacy stack that was probably 15 years old. So if you wrote more than one type of insurance with a customer, you had no idea what you were doing with them systematically. And that seemed to me to be a real problem. And I just thought there was an opportunity to get hold of that and to get hold of your data. And to do that, you had to grasp the nettle of technology and become tech-enabled. The other thing I thought was that this is a $4.3 trillion industry that's driving at 90 miles an hour down the road, and it's using the rear view mirror to drive. It's existing in the MGA space on board roads. It can be 60 days out of date. And I just thought the world was going to go to real-time data. And I thought also that we were going to move into a more product and service type of environment and insurance, and that that was going to become increasingly important. And also, the UX outside of the risk transfer itself is pretty shoddy. 
you know, you've got um, a terrible mess, especially if you're in an intermediated channel around midterm adjustments and uh, paperwork and all that good stuff. And I just thought that we'd lost sight of the end insured and the broker and actually that the MGAs had also weren't serving their capital providers very well. UX, that's user experience, by the way. And the GUI you'll hear in a minute, well, that's graphical user interface. But what Graham has got to say next is very interesting and something still forgotten by many larger insurance companies. Finally, I think talent is going to want to work in a modern company on a modern stack. And I just don't think um, uh, they're going to want to play in stuff with 30-year-old technology uh, with a GUI interface front end and a bit of digital lipstick slapped on, a, on an analog pig. So, um, so that was why we decided to do it. We started off in high net worth insurance we're now, we've grown it um, pretty rapidly um, and we're, we're writing business in uh, the UK and Europe. And as Matthew said, along the way, we got asked by some, some, uh, in, some insurers to um, build complex products for, other, for them. And uh, we've deployments as a tech company in admitted and non-admitted lines across the US in multi-classes. Uh, and we're currently building a global OEM product um, launching in France in the summer. So we've got a pretty wide range of experience and it's all done on a modern stack in the cloud using as much uh, that's already been, been built as possible to minimize our costs. Well, we're going to be hearing more from Graham in a moment, but some more technical terms for those of you not familiar with insurance language. The term admitted lines refers to the mainstream regulated US insurance companies that are required to have their insurance rates approved by the state regulators. Not admitted business is often the type of complicated or non-standard cover the mainstream insurers in the US can't or won't underwrite and commonly gets picked up by the MGA market, often coming into London. And next up is Alistair Spearcole, President for Insurance for Complex. Complex itself was founded in 2014. You yourself are pretty well known to many of the people listening from various very senior roles in insurance and broking. You joined Complex in 2017 as president of insurance. Now, uh, Complex has recently, for those who are following the news, I think is now classified as a unicorn. It's got over a billion dollar valuation. But for those who have been watching you, you've been variously in a technology company. You're doing analytics around cyber. You're a platform. And you've also started acquiring companies. So uh, it looks like it's a busy time for you, but just wondering, sort of, is there a sort of coherent, I'm sure there is a coherent strategy, so maybe we should phrase it in a different way. Um, what is the coherent strategy around what you're doing in all these different areas? And, and again, for you personally, what was it that motivated you to join a, a relatively new company? I think some of the motivation to join Complex is very similar to some of the problems identified by Graham. Complex's thesis is that there needs to be a much, much more interoperable approach to the whole business of data extraction from structured, unstructured sources, um, data normalization, cleaning, semantification, putting it into the right sort of um, stores, and then um, having appropriate process management flows and um, analytics tools. And that doesn't matter whether you're in the business of logistics or insurance or, or, or cyber. The guys that founded the company also came from a very much from a cyber risk management, Department of Defense type of background. And they recognized that actually some of the fundamental problems around cyber were really data problems. So the thesis was a very big data, um, a data fabric type of company. 
It just happens that a couple of the obvious and immediate use cases for this are one, um, cyber risk management. And so we're one of the few companies that could have detected solar winds and got it out of people's systems before it did much damage. So that's one of our key areas of expertise is around doing an inside out view of people's systems. And we do it for very big companies at the moment. Um, and similarly, when I came on board, it was to see what um, we could do to take some of this technology and use it in insurance space. So we built a, an automated underwriting platform and we are platforming various data and modeling streams like Oasis LMF. And so the thesis was that we, for insurance companies, would be able to do some or all of the journey to allow people to configure a better experience from data extraction, storing it in the right way, doing the right analytics, and hence the acquisition of RPC Taiki. And that is very much to provide a toolkit to the end of the data factory. So um, that's why I was intrigued, because I felt that if you're turning over the entire insurance industry, that was something that I wanted to be involved in rather than actually sort of soldiering away at the industry as it is now. Next up is Jonathan Sprite, co-founder of Envelop. Jonathan, to you. So you set up uh, Envelop back in 2016. You described yourself as the world's most reluctant MGA, uh, you've got a slightly unusual model in that you are a, a reinsurance MGA and you're publicly backed by MS Amelin. You also value very highly the, the data and some of your proprietary analytics. But again, the same question for you. What was it for you that took you into the MGA space and, and actually chose this particular area to focus on? We set this up really to tackle one of the many well-flagged issues with insurance. Um, and I think InsureTech is really a series of related responses to frustrations that all of us have had, including what we've just heard from Alistair in terms of the slow pace of change in insurance and some of the operational inefficiencies we see. But the one that really caught our um, attention and imagination was just the nature and process of underwriting and the way decisions are made by underwriters and to allocate risk. And that, that's really what we set out to do, was to improve the way that underwriting decisions were made and actually borrow a lot from things like behavioral economics in terms of judgment under uncertainty, overcoming what we think of as heuristic underwriting. We're not particularly keen on automating, and that's just because we choose to address complex risk, which... We, we don't think necessarily can be completely automated, although we would accept that, that, that you know, some automation has a, a, a role to play. So I guess what we wanted to do was bet on ourselves. We saw the world as full of pricing signals. And what we wanted to do was develop proprietary technology to observe pricing signals and then go and effectively trade on them. So I guess the, the business model we had most in mind when we set this up was more like a hedge fund that actually we, we were not keen on the idea of developing technology for anyone else. We really weren't keen on the idea of licensing in technology from anyone else. Um, and we just wanted to generate alpha, if you like, by having proprietary toolkits and better data, and more importantly than anything, people that can actually use that data. Wow, that is such a good description of a technology-enabled MGA. I'm going to replay it for you one more time. What we wanted to do was bet on ourselves. We we saw the world as full of pricing signals. And what we wanted to do was develop proprietary technology to observe pricing signals and then go and effectively trade on them. We really weren't keen on the idea of licensing in technology from anyone else. 
And we just wanted to generate alpha, if you like, by having proprietary toolkits and better data, um, and more importantly than anything, people that can actually use that data. So there you go. And by the way, that quote, along with all the best insights from our podcast, are available in our accompanying write-ups to the podcast on the website. Now, Jonathan goes on. Which moves us towards more augmented intelligence underwriting. And then looking around for a business model, the MGA is actually a nice way to get the flexibility that we heard about just earlier um, and try and build alignment with your capital providers. Um, you know, we believe strongly our role is capital allocation. So we need to be heavily um, incentivized to have skin in the game with that. And I think MGA takes you about halfway to what we would like, which is really a kind of aligned underwriting platform, which would still give us independence to make decisions and develop proprietary technology in a, in a, in a data-driven environment, which I think is, is something that incumbent insurers and reinsurers really, really struggle to do. They just can't move quick enough to develop fully in-house the type of technology we want to use. But at the same time, we're, we're completely prepared to live or die by the, the underwriting decisions we make and, and have you know, as much alignment as possible with that capital and the results of our capital allocation. Jonathan picks up on the similarities with what we've already heard from Azure and Complex and gives us a sense of the scale of Envelop's success. As Alistair already mentioned, if you have forward-looking technology, you're not going to get run over by the same buses as, as you will if you're just driving through the rearview mirror, as, as Graham said. So um, that has meant that we don't necessarily fall off our chairs when we see an event like SolarWinds um, and, and so on. And we've done that at scale. So we'll be above 100 million in premium this year. And the challenge now is to continue to embed that, that technology, but at scale. We're not particularly interested in proof of concept or sort of dabbling. We want to do everything at a, a level which is meaningful for the specialty industry and, and particularly reinsurance. Elizabeth, just turning to you now. So you you joined Nimbler um, fairly recently last year. Nimbler itself is offering uh, invoice insurance for SMEs, small, medium businesses, an area that I think was very much underserved before uh, companies being sort of growing, I think quietly in the background, but you know, recently has just come out and announced some quite big breakthroughs. You're working for a long time, I think mostly in the broking world, uh, saw what Nimbler are doing. So a couple of questions in there, you know, why has Nimbler sort of gone down this route? And, and secondly, what was it that took you out of the, maybe safe's the wrong word these days, but the corporate world into a, uh, I think we can still call you a startup as you established in 2017. So why did Nimbler go down this route? There is a whole opportunity of customers who don't buy this product. And that's something that I was really compelled by here because we're going at an area of insurance that people aren't buying. So we've got a whole fresh community to, to go for. So only 4% of SMEs currently buy trade credit. And the reason why is they're usually priced out of the market. Now, because we can do tactical invoice insurance where they can come in and buy one or 100 invoices, they're able to make dynamic decisions about what they do and don't want to insure and can quote and bind in under three minutes, which is very, very, very different from the traditional market, which takes days, if not weeks, to, um, to put a product together and is quite cumbersome. By getting the real-time data from the cloud accounting systems, we're able to make 
very intelligent, real-time, algorithmic credit decisions on for the SMEs who are then able to decide that they want to take that order, want to take that trade, ensure at a click of a button through the cloud accounting integration, and they're off. So it's, it's lovely and fast. And when you're looking at the new SMEs and the new startups coming through who are all automatically on cloud accounting, they don't have any fear about just plugging that into us and, and, and us getting that real-time data, which is fantastic. I was working in trade credit for 19 years at Aon, and the SME piece was always the hardest nut to crack because you've got this huge lake of customers who, who want it, who might not even know about it, so there is an education piece. But in order to be profitable in that space, you need to make it digital. And that's where the bigger insurance companies, brokers, didn't really want to make that investment. They didn't really want to make that end-to-end digital products, and, and Nimbler did. And Fleming, who was working in capital markets and looking for this product and couldn't find it, um, that, and that's why he founded the company. So um, the other reason why I joined is having worked in big companies, I was always so frustrated by the amount of data that big companies throw away that they don't use. Uh, if you think about all the legacy databases and all the information in that and all that customer information, and they don't use it to great effect to be able to tell those data stories, to be able to you know, set that incredible strategy. We're four years old, and I've been brought in really to, to your point, we're not really a startup anymore, we're more of a scale-up. So uh, you know, making sure that we've got all those commercial systems in place, uh, making sure we've got the robust processes in place to fly from here on in. You mentioned that insurance companies have a lot of data, can't do anything with it, throw it away or ignore it. Why is that happening? I, mean, I think every board, every CEO knows today the value of data. They recognize how it can support customers. So what's the barrier to them actually doing something constructive with that to support you know, both customers and their internal processes? I think they try really hard, but let's bear in mind they've got these big legacy systems and sometimes it's very difficult to extract the data out of that or to make sense of it because it's in different places. When I remember my time at Aon and, and thinking about how we embrace technology there, There were a lot of discussions about the reasons why we couldn't do it. And I'd like to turn that on its head in the data and say, you know, what is the opportunity? Because we're a tech-led company, not an MGA-led company. How can Nimbler's technology actually help me make my customers stickier? How can it bring a whole new conversation to my client that my competitor might not be having with them? How can it make me more profitable in this space? So that's the kind of conversations that we want the bigger companies to be having around technology rather than the the more negative ones um, around, oh, it might not work. There's a lot of layers of bureaucracy to get through. And Graham, I know you've got some quite strong views on this as well. Uh, As you mentioned earlier, I think it was one of the drivers for for building the business and going down the the MGA route. The large organisations are aware of this, established ones, wherever you've got to provide data back to your capacity providers. Are Are they now starting to solve this problem and see the value of data? And if not, you know, what, what advice would you give to them to be able to act a bit more uh, with a bit more agility like a, an earlier stage company? Everybody understands how important data is to making decisions. And of course, everybody understands what good user experience looks like at the front end because they use apps on their phones all day long. And it's not just a simple toolkit answer. It's it's actually a cultural answer. I mean, the the, the, the analogy would be if you give me a block of marble and a chisel and a mallet, I'll, chew, I'll produce a chewed block of marble. If you give Michelangelo the same toolkit, he'll produce David. And so it isn't the toolkit that really matters. It's mindset and it's cultural. And it's, and it's, a, it's a tough problem to solve. Of course, they can do it. 
But you've got to do a few things. The first thing is capital can only write what it's got appetite for. And so by definition, you can't therefore produce a product that that necessarily copes with every single customer need at the other end because you may not have the appetite to write it. The second thing is where you've got these multiple systems and data all over the place, you've got an orgy of reking. And as soon as you've got that going on somewhere in the world, you've got data sort of verification issues and, and validation issues that slow you down and put you into a batch process world away from a live world. The third thing is, if you are working in a traditional insurance industry on the underwriting side, the underwriter is king or queen. They rule the roost. And the tech people crawl around under the desks and make, the, make their systems work in the morning. And what you've got to do is give equality of primacy to your tech people with your underwriters. That is a culturally hugely difficult thing to do. And it's a massive battle and you never win it. You're always on it. And, and if you can solve those issues, if you can get your appetite right, and you can sort out the core legacy problems, systems of record legacy problems, where you splintered your data and it's often being held hostage by third-party providers, and you can get your, your, your underwriters to understand technology and your technology people to understand underwriting and give them equality of privacy, you've solved the problem. But that's the problem. It's not easy to do. Well, there was a lot in there and it can be hard to get right for many companies. So I was intrigued whether Graham thought this meant that the large incumbent insurers should give up on trying to innovate deeply for themselves and focus instead on investing in or ultimately buying out other more agile MGA insurtechs. You've got to go after it because in 20 years time, there won't be insurance companies and insurtech companies. They'll just be tech-enabled insurance companies or you won't exist. So you've got to go after it. And one of the ways you can do it for sure is partnership. We don't talk about disruption because we don't think it's possible for us as a little tiny MGA to go out and say, we're going to disrupt Aon. I mean, it's bonkers. Or we're going to disrupt, you know, AXA. It's bonkers. Um, We think of it as partnerships. And we think that there's lessons to learn and it will happen. Um, But the opportunity for the agile players like us is to get to get in that conversation and be out of the game a bit. So I wouldn't ever say give up on it. it you've got to do it. Um, but it is a really cultural thing. And it's got to come from the head. You know, the CEO has got to understand what multi-tenant cloud computing is. And if they don't understand what multi-tenant cloud computing is and can't articulate it, how are you ever going to make the right decision on tech stacks? It's difficult. Well, do you know what multi-tenant computing is? Well, I asked Graham to explain. With multi-tenant cloud computing, what you do is you use archetypes that are out there already, and where you can, you configure. Instead of building from base metal, you're configuring stuff. So Facebook have one version of the code and 2.7 billion users, and each person has got their own individual Facebook page. It's an extreme example, but it explains what we're doing. We're going from pools of things to individual one-on-one relationships with millions of people. And the only way you can possibly do that is to stand on the shoulders of giants. So don't build your own CRM system. Use somebody else's CRM system. CRM, that's a customer relationship management system. You can break out to code when you need to to get more complex. But when you don't want to, just stick within the guidelines and and save yourself a house of pain. And Alistair Spear-Cole has something to add to this too. One of the biggest challenges is the cultural challenge. When you start talking to a big company, you find yourself talking to decision makers who don't really understand the tech or 
understand enough, but have got internal champions for their own solutions. I think that you've got a number of conflicting users. So it's not just the underwriters, it's the people who are trying to do capital modeling, it's the people who are trying to do aggregate control, it's the people who are trying to do activities for portfolio optimization. And so all of these people need the same data to do different things. And so I think one of the, um, uh, the, the challenges for big companies, and I think that they will overcome this, is to actually get the, getting the data out of um, their different systems, but not sinking it all into a data lake. You have to take the pain in getting the data organized as it comes out of systems and tracked and registered and put into appropriate stores, not just relational databases. And then you can pull it out and do all sorts of analytics around it. And I think that's probably where most big companies will have to go because they can't just rip out their legacy systems. Um, they need to be able to get their own data um, into a multi-user environment. And they've also got to be able to augment it very easily with external data, maybe pull straight off um, uh, websites or from um, other sources. So, so I think that the vision for big companies is they need to stop building their own kit and start doing exactly as Graham says, you know, relying on, on companies who um, can provide them with configurable solutions, which they can then um, uh, uh, join together and, and spend their time configuring, not building. I had a question for Jonathan at this point, because Envelop has a slightly different view of how they use and share data. For many of the carriers offering capacity to MGAs, they, they want to, and quite rightly, understand a lot of the data that is being used at the point of underwriting. I know because you're dealing with cyber, you think about that slightly differently. But also the underwriters, you know, both your underwriters and then with the organizations are working with, have got to make decisions where there's uncertainty inherent in those. Can you say, can you talk a bit about how both internally for your own underwriting, but also when you've got other parties providing capital, you know, what is what is enough in terms of information you provide and how do you address that issue of uncertainty, particularly particular challenge for cyber? Data is a challenge and it's an opportunity, but it's quite an easy answer for us, this question. So we insist on data um, to underwrite a deal. So we effectively have a no data, no deal policy. And we were kind of pushing our luck a bit, I think, uh, implementing that policy to begin with when nobody knew us, but we stuck to our guns and we've been very successful in abiding to that rule. And I think that has really, really helped us. So we do not underwrite deals unless we have uh, real visibility on the underlying risk. And that requires a lot of trust from our students and our client base. Um, and what we do to reward that trust is to handle data in an environment of extreme integrity. And we do not pass on any data to any of our carriers, whether that's the, the sort of well-known one or any of the others that sit behind them or elsewhere, it, it sits with us and we have a data science team that handle data and, and we don't kind of pass it around the market. We want to become known as custodians and guardians of data as well as just sort of traders. Um, the other thing we do is we tend to try and add some value back to all of our clients and effectively reward them for giving us data by giving them back some insight into their risk. So we quite often share the results of our modeling with our client base. We, we tend not to give them the technical price for obvious reasons, but we, we find other ways to show them a little bit about what we think and how portfolio optimization might be achieved over, over a period of time and so on. It also speaks to you know, some of the challenges that um, we've just been talking about in terms of culturally, this is a very different way of approaching business compared to what you might see in some of the larger 
kind of reinsurance companies where they don't have a culture of data science. I asked Elizabeth what she thought about this issue of sharing data. I'm a big fan of partnership because I think we can move faster that way. And and as I talked about before, the way we talk about MGAs, the way we talk about technology, it's opportunity rather than threat. I think there's a massive opportunity in in partnership. And, And I touched on it earlier when I think about the connectivity between client and well, in our world, it would be broker and funder, for example, and technology. Um, and uh, and underwriter, everybody can win if we apply technology to it. We can make it faster. We can get the funding out the door faster. We can get the capital allocation in real time. All of these, the broker gets a stickier customer because they brought a new innovative idea to them. So it's it's a case where everybody can win through partnership. Incumbents are, are fabulous at what they do. Don't don't get me wrong, but we're also very good at what we do. And so by Bringing the two together, you've got this lovely marriage, if you like. As we reach the end of our discussion, I return to Graham Elliott. What did he think the future was for MGAs? Would they mostly get swallowed up by insurers, or will we see more and more growing into insurers in their own right? MGAs have been cottage industry, you know, really subscale for a long time. And I think that just like hedge funds that used to run 300 million, it was a bit of a lifestyle business. And as they um, they've now scaled up and they're as big as any other asset manager out there. I think MGAs are here to stay and, and there are going to be some massive global MGAs that are in the space, play properly, whether you as an individual want to sell out before that happens to a carrier or become a carrier. It's personal choice for the, for the management team and the shareholders. But, but, but I do think there's a space at the top table for this vehicle. And I think it's not just a soft market phenomenon. Well, a lot in there, but some great insights from our panellists about the roles of MGAs, data, technology, interoperability, and so much more. My thanks to everyone, and of course, to William Hawkins at KBW for inviting us to speak at their event. Now, you're going to be hearing more directly from William when I interview him later this year about the state of the insurance market globally and how the traditional world of insurance compares to what we see coming out of new technology, insurtech, and of course, MGAs. All my guests today are members of Instech London, and you can find out a lot more about them on our website, London. Look at the members page. And if you're interested in talking to us about how we can help you share your views and news around the world, please do contact me, Matthew Grant, by LinkedIn, or any of us, hello at London.